This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory of Dina Bat Esther, a loving mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother, and in general, a delightful person all around. May the Torah that we do today be in her merit and bring her elevation in heaven. And this was sponsored anonymously by her family. And of course, we thank them for their support and their generosity. And if you want to support Torch, and if you want to sponsor a Parsha podcast anonymously, or even if you want to do it not anonymously, or even pseudonymously, please send me an email, rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Of course, you can visit the support page on our website, torchweb.org, and make sure you click the nifty icon that says podcast. Now, before we begin, I got some criticism of the Parsha podcast from someone that I love and respect their opinion greatly. They said to me, says, Wolby, there's just way too much energy and optimism and positivity and ebullience in the podcast. You start off the podcast and you say, oh, could you believe it? Oh my, what an amazing time to be alive. We're in the Torch Center. Can you believe how fortunate we are to study Torah together each week? It's not befitting. You have to be a little bit more respectable, more subdued, toned down. Play it straight. Be professional. Be calm. Say, hi, welcome to the podcast. It is so nice to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening. I hope you're having a nice day. Don't be too energetic and over the top. Now, of course, you know, we take criticism very seriously here at the Torch Center. We want to improve every single day. Now, to make matters a little bit more confusing... I've gotten lots of positive feedback and people like apparently the energy and the upbeatness. So which one is better? What should we do? What do you say? Should we play it straight and calm and professional, toned down? Or should we amp up that energy? What do you say? More calm or more exuberant? Send me an email and if you want to simplify it, You could just write a one-word email, either the word subdued or exuberant, rabbalbashiba.com. But regardless, spread the word. Tell a friend. And speaking of spreading the word, we got an amazing review on Apple Podcasts from someone named Gonzo512. And the title, the subject line of the review was transformative, five stars. And the review reads as follows. If you need to listen to something that will transform your view of how to live, please, please listen to this podcast. Don't just listen once. Listen to as many of these podcasts as you can. These podcasts are not only exceptional for their wisdom, but the positive energy and enthusiasm that one absorbs when listening to them produces an amazing experience. Learning isn't easy. Life isn't easy. But if you devote an hour a week to listening, and really trying to understand what's being said, I promise you will grow. Well, thank you, Gonzo512, for this amazing review on Apple Podcasts. You know, such nice, crisp writing. Maybe Gonzo512 wants to start writing for the team at Torch. Maybe. Send me an email. But thank you so much for your kind review and feedback. So I guess Gonzo is of the opinion that the energy is good, But you know what? This is almost like a democracy. It's really like um, 
It's not a democracy. I'm more like a, like a dictator. I'm like the tyrant of the podcast. I'm the autocrat of the podcast. Totalitarianism over here rules. But nevertheless, I'm going to take your opinion into account. Send me an email, calm or subdued or exuberant and upbeat and positive energy. Let me know. Okay, so this week is Parsha's Told Us, and I selected a fun subject, an interesting subject to talk about today. This is a subject that's really not limited to our Parsha. In fact, it's featured in almost every Parsha in the book of Genesis. And it's a subject that I've gotten a lot of questions about. It actually relates to what we talked about last week. I find it to be very interesting, and I want to do like a dedicated episode to the subject and whenever anyone asks me a question about this, I say, you know what? In Toldos of November of 2021, we did a whole episode on the subject. Go listen to it, and you'll have everything you need about this subject in one place. And the subject is Torah pre-Sinai. Torah of Abraham, the Torah of Isaac, the Torah of Jacob, the Torah of the Jewish family, before the descent to Egypt, before the national revelation at Sinai, before we actually got the Torah, what was the status, what is the state of Torah beforehand? Now, what does this actually mean? What it means is there are many examples of the family of Abraham observing and studying Torah before it was even given. So, for example, in our parish, we have many examples of this concept. So when Isaac instructs his son Asaph to go catch some game and prepare it for him, he tells him, this is chapter 27, verse 3, take your tools and take your bow and take your sword and go out to the field. And Rashi explains that he's telling him to go sharpen your sword, sharpen your knife, so that when you catch the animal and you slaughter it, make sure that the knife is razor sharp. So that way, the animal that you produce and the meat that you produce is going to be kosher. He's telling Esav, I want you to slaughter it so that the meat that you serve me will be done with the, will be produced with a sharp knife and that way it will be kosher for me to consume. Now, obviously you read that, you say, wait a minute, what's going on over here? The laws of kosher are not told to us until, I think it's Parsha Shmini in the book of Leviticus. And the laws of slaughtering is not featured till Deuteronomy chapter 12. Yet Isaac already, again, hundreds of years before Sinai, is concerned about having kosher meat. How does he even know what kosher meat is? Moreover, a few verses later, we read chapter 27, verse 9. That Isaac observed Pesach and ate the pastoral offering. Rashi says that the reason why Rebekah asks for two goats, one of them is to have the delicacies that he's asking for, and the other one is for the pastoral offering. Moreover, we read 26.12, that Isaac wanted to estimate the yield of his land and he found out that it was a hundred times more than was anticipated. This is 26.12 of our parasha. And Rashi tells us that the reason why he did that is because he wanted to know how much to tithe. And by the way, in 14.20, Abraham tithed. And Rashi tells us that when Asaph was tricking his father, this is in our parasha 25.27, it says that he was trapping and tricking his father by portraying himself as being super righteous and wanting to know how to tithe 
salt, and hay. And in Esther's parsha, after Jacob has his dream with the ladder and the angels going up and down, he promises God, everything you give to me, I will tithe. So got a mitzvah in the Torah that happens, or that's instructed to us later on, tithing is already being done by the forefathers. Rashi tells us that Sarah lit candles on Friday night. Of course, this is a ubiquitous mitzvah that we do. It's actually a rabbinic mitzvah, but a mitzvah that's done in every Jewish home. Friday night, you light candles. Sarah, hundreds of years before Sinai, hundreds of years really before the formation of the Jewish nation, was lighting candles and baking challah for Shabbos. After Jacob, in chapter 32, after he has the separation from Laban, he's about to encounter the next nemesis, the next menace. He's about to meet Esav. He sends messengers to Esav, and he tells them to go tell my brother, my master Esav, that I have lived in Lavan Garti. I lived with Laban. And Rashi tells us the word Garti, which means I lived, is an anagram of the word Taryag, meaning 613. And what Jacob was intimating to his brother is that even though he lived alongside or next to, in the proximity of Laban, he maintained 613 mitzvos. All the Torah, all the mitzvos of the Torah amount to 613 mitzvos. And when Jacob was in the house of Laban, he kept all 613. Again, Jacob is four generations before Moshe, before Sinai. Nevertheless, he kept all 613. So this is a very unusual concept because we're not accustomed to thinking of the characters of Genesis as ones who live with Torah, who observe Torah. That's This is all before Sinai, after all. Nevertheless, we see many instances in the literature and the commentary in the Midrash and the Rashi that they actually kept the whole Torah. Now, the source is actually in our Parsha. God promises Isaac that he will take good care of him and he will increase his descendants. And the reason, Genesis 26, 5, Ekev asher shama Avraham because Abraham hearkened to my voice, vayishmor mishmarti, he guarded my charge, mitzvosai, my mitzvos, chutosai, my statutes, vitorasai, and my Torahs. The verse is explicit that Abraham hearkened to God's voice, guarded God's charge and mitzvos and statutes and Torahs. And Rashi explains, what does this mean? Abraham hearkened to God's voice when God tested him. And Abraham guarded the Almighty's charge by keeping rabbinic law. And Abraham guarded the Almighty's mitzvos. What does that mean? That's a category of mitzvos that are logical. Logical laws like the laws against murder and theft, things that even if you weren't commanded to do it by God, you would do it nonetheless. Chukosai statutes refer to statutes, to laws that defy human logic, like the prohibition against eating non-kosher animals or wearing shotness garments made out of wool and linen or any other mitzvah that makes no sense to us. And finally, Torosai, my Torahs, that's a reference to the written Torah and the oral Torah. So we have a verse here which kind of grounds this whole idea that there's Torah that exists before Sinai and there's Torah that's observed by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
and their families. And we have an explicit verse that says that Abraham observed it all. The Talmud, the book of Yoma, says even further, even rabbinic law, even the laws of Eruv, Abraham observed. This is an astonishing thing. Centuries before Sinai, Abraham observed all of Torah. Presumably, Abraham wore tefillin. Abraham had tzitzis on the corners of his garments. Abraham had a mezuzah on his doorpost. You would imagine, on the festival of Sukkot, Abraham sat in a sukkah and shook a lulav and ate matzah, kept the whole Torah. This is just an amazing thing. Before there's a Jewish nation, before there's an Exodus, all 613 mitzvos were observed by Abraham and certainly by Isaac and Jacob as well. So much so that there's a very famous question by the Ramban. This is something we spoke about in the past. The Ramban asks the question, one of the mitzvahs of the Torah is that a man may not marry two sisters simultaneously. If one of them dies, then that's okay. But simultaneously, you cannot be married to two sisters. Well, how did Jacob marry two sisters? He married Rachel and Leah, Natrix Parsha. Spoiler alert. How did he marry two sisters? If Jacob observed the whole Torah, how did he violate this particular law? So the Rabban answers that indeed... Jacob kept the whole Torah, but because it was not obligatory, it was not mandated by God, there was no covenant and commandment and instruction of Sinai yet, he only observed it inside the land of Israel, inside the land of Canaan. Outside of the land, he didn't observe it. It wasn't obligated. He didn't accept upon himself to do that outside of the land. And therefore, outside the land, when Jacob goes to Haran, And he marries two sisters in violation of the Torah because he wasn't obligated to do it. And he only did it, so to speak. He volunteered. He did it on his own. He opted in, but he opted in only in the land of Israel. And the Rabban adds that when Jacob entered the land, Rachel died. The reason why Rachel died right when he entered the land, is because he first married Leah, and therefore his marriage to Rachel, that was the union that violated the prohibition against marrying two sisters. Because Leah, he married, it was totally permissible. He wasn't married to any of her sisters. The marriage to Rachel was the one that encroached on this prohibition, and therefore, as he entered the land, Rachel had to die in order to, so to speak, annul that marriage and prevent Jacob from being married to two sisters. That's the Ramban's comment and his explanation. So how did Jacob marry two sisters? The Ramban says, again, Jacob observed everything, but only in the land. There are other answers. So for example, the Maharsha in the book of Yom on page 28b tells us that the way Jacob married two sisters is because they were converts. And a convert who converts to Torah, to Judaism, is like an infant born. They have a clean slate and all their relatives, they get annulled. They start from scratch like a brand new baby. 
and therefore they weren't really considered halakhically sisters, and he was allowed to marry them. But again, the principle that Jacob observed the whole Torah is accepted by all. Rabbeinu Bechaya, one of the other commentators, he says that in a couple of weeks we're going to read about Jacob having a midnight struggle, a nocturnal battle with a man. Really, we know that that's an angel. And the whole night they're struggling. And in the morning, the angel hits him in his hip and dislodges his hip. And that's the angel who renames Jacob Israel. So the commentary explains what's happened in the whole night. The whole night, the angel is poking and prodding Jacob to find a vulnerability, to find a weakness. And the only area of weakness, the only part, so to speak, of Jacob's body that has a flaw, that has a vulnerability, that the Torah, so to speak, of that particular region of the body is not being fully observed, is the area near near the genitalia, near the groins, in the loin, so to speak, of Jacob, because he was married to two sisters, that was the only flaw, and that was the only area that the angel was able to attack him at. But regardless, everyone agrees that at least to a certain extent, or at least in Israel, in Canaan, in the land, the forefathers observed the Torah way before it was given. Now, it's not just the observance of the Torah that they did. It was also the study of Torah. We mentioned this last week. Abraham headed an institution, a yeshiva, and Eliezer, his confidant and right-hand man, he was in charge of teaching Torah. And the Talmud tells us in the aforementioned book of Yoma, page 28b, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of them headed a yeshiva into their advanced age. Moreover, the Talmud actually says something very stunning. The Talmud says, not only did Abraham have Torah, Abraham's Torah was more comprehensive than ours. Talmud says, our book of Talmud, of the laws of Avodah of idolatry, if you look at the uh, set of Talmud, and you open up the book called Avodah which means idolatry, and you count the chapters, it has five chapters. Says the Talmud, Abraham had the same book. But his version of this book, his book of Talmud, of the laws of idolatry, contained not five chapters, but 400 chapters. Abraham had a more comprehensive Torah on this subject. His book of Talmud of Avodah was 80 times more comprehensive than ours. And the Talmud actually adds, and we have such a hard time studying our five chapters. And Abraham had 400 chapters. Now, we're also told that there was an academy of shame and aver. If you look at the fourth verse of our Parsha, it tells us that there was a struggle in utero between Jacob and Esav. And Rashi explains that whenever Rebecca, who was bearing those two babies or those two fetuses, Whenever she passed the Academy of Torah of Shame and Aver, Shame is the righteous son of Noah, and Aver is Shame's great-grandson, and they had an academy, and in the academy they studied Torah, again, way before Sinai, whenever they passed that, Jacob in utero had such 
fine senses for Torah that he started making a push. He was starting to jostle to try to leave and to be born to go study. And whenever they passed the house of idolatry, Esav, he had a sense for it. He had a desire for it. He had a lust for it. And he too made a move to try to be born to go worship idolatry. Now, Jacob himself, in the end of our parsha, we read in the, ver- the very last Rashi of our parsha, tells us that Jacob actually spent 14 years between when he escaped from Esav and when he arrived in Haran, he spent 14 years in the academy of shame and Aver. And we're also told that Jacob's favorite son, we read in chapter 37, verse 3, was Joseph. And Rashi explains that he taught him all of his Torah. And Judah founded a yeshiva in Goshen. When Jacob was reunited or found out about the fact that Joseph is still alive, he sent Judah ahead of him to go found a yeshiva in Egypt before the nation gets there. So what an amazing thing over here. We just surveyed many, many sources that tell us that the forefathers and their families both observed the Torah before it was given and studied it before it was given. And we believe that the Torah was in heaven before Abraham. Yet our antecedents had access to it in its entirety, both on a practical level, observing all the mitzvahs, and on a theoretical level, learning it, studying it. They even had academies to study Torah. What an interesting idea but also something that I think warrants exploration and investigation. How exactly did they know what to keep? How did they have access to Torah? We have a very simple way to understand how we got Torah. We had the revelation at Sinai. Moshe went to Sapir for 40 days, came back with the Torah. Of course, there were other events, intervening events, golden calf, smashed the tablets, went up a second time, went up a third time. But eventually, Moshe conveyed to us the Torah, written Torah, oral Torah, and eventually gave it all to us, and we perpetuated it throughout the generations. But here we're told that Abraham, before Moses, Isaac, Jacob, their families, they had access to the identical Torah, even the rabbinic law, written Torah, oral Torah, they had access to all of that, and they were observing it, and they were studying it, before it was given. How did they get it? How did they know what to observe? How did they have access to the Torah? So I'm going to give you three answers to this question. Now, there are more answers to this question, but I find these three to be particularly interesting and insightful. So first of all, we have to acknowledge that the Torah indeed existed before Sinai. In fact, the Talmud tells us, we've quoted this Talmud in the past in some of the other podcasts, Talmud tells us in the book of Pesach on page 54a, there were seven themes that were created before the world was created. And the first one is Torah. In fact, our sages tell us that the very first theme that God created was actually Torah. It's the thing, so to speak, that's highest on this hierarchy of spiritual sublimity, the thing that's most similar to God in the entire world, or in all of existence, is Torah. And man, 
Well, man is the last thing that God created. And the objective of existence is to connect the two, to connect the first thing that God created with the last thing that God created to bridge the first and last of God's creations. Man is the thing that, so to speak, furthest away from God because man is the only thing that can rebel against God. But this idea that the Torah actually existed way before it was given to us at Sinai is well documented and established. We've talked about in the past, I think we've done several discussions about this, the Talmud, the book of Shabbos, page 88b, tells us that when Moshe went up to heaven, the angels were very perplexed and surprised to see him. And they asked God, well, what's he doing here? He's coming here to get the Torah. The Torah? The precious treasure that existed 974 generations before the world was created. You want to give it to lowly man? Torah very much existed before it was given to us at Sinai. It just existed on a different dimension. In the words of the Talmud, it existed as black fire atop white fire. If you remember, on the very first Parsha podcast of the fourth cycle of the Parsha podcast, so now we're in the sixth cycle, but I guess that's two years ago, we read the Ramban's introduction to Torah, where he explained this idea of the Torah that existed in heaven before the world was created. Torah always existed. It was the very first thing that was created. And it served as a blueprint for everything else that followed. They might have looked into the Torah and created the world. But the Torah of the heaven is in this different format. It's a heavenly Torah. And it's written in some other way, in some other dimension, black fire atop of white fire. And it's kind of a tantalizing subject. How do you get the heavenly Torah to become the terra firma Torah? How does the black fire atop of white fire Torah, how does that transpose to the Torah of what we study, which includes... Laws such as what happens when my ox gores your cow and we find a dead baby calf on the side and we're not sure if the cow was born as a stillborn prior to being gored and therefore I'm not responsible for anything more than my animal killing your animal or did my animal gore your animal and that caused the miscarriage and have to pay not only for the dead cow but also for the dead calf. That's a law that's discussed In our Torah, but you won't find a version of that in the Torah of black fire atop of white fire. That is a Torah that's, so to speak, adapted to the spiritual world. Sinai is the transpositioning of Torah from the heavenly version of it to the earthly version of it. The essence of Torah, its holiness, is not diminished, but the garments, so to speak, of Torah are going to be adapted and tailored to our world and our world's frameworks. And by the way, this is really interesting. We have a heavenly Torah, Torah of black fire atop of white fire. And we have an earthly Torah, a Torah of oxen goring each other and all kinds of laws about humans and laws that matter to our world. And they're the same Torah, just in different garments. What happens after you die? 
After you die, if you are righteous and meritorious, you're invited to the afterlife. What an amazing thing. What are we going to do in the afterlife? How are we going to spend our time? There isn't like politics or sports or Netflix in heaven. Those those pastimes are not going to resonate at all with us there. We want to cleave to God. We want to connect to the Almighty. That's the only thing that matters to us. Real existence. Not the fantasy. And we're going to have an opportunity to study Torah. Please God, if we're meritorious. Not just the earthly Torah, but we're going to be exposed to the Torah of black fire top of white fire. The heavenly Torah. The Torah of the soul. The Torah that's not couched in human terms. The Torah of the angels. The Torah of heaven. So much so that the sources that talk about these kinds of matters, they tell us that even someone who's a super duper righteous person, completely righteous, when they die, well, they go to heaven, right? Well, when do they go to heaven? So I would think, I would have thought, right after they die, they roll out the red carpet, proverbially, and they go straight to heaven. And to a certain degree, that is in fact true. But they have to actually spend a whole year in the lower paradise before they can enter the upper paradise. There is a lower level of heaven. And only after they spend a year in the lower level of heaven can they ascend to the higher level of heaven. And the reason for this is because they have to learn to acclimate to the perspectives, to the outlooks, to the worldview of the heavenly Torah. Even if someone is immersed and developed a real expertise, a taste for Torah here, they need to be trained so to speak, to reverse, to rever- to do the exact opposite of what Moshe did. Moshe went to heaven and took a heavenly Torah and transposed it to us to make it palatable and understandable to us. Well, when we die, if we're righteous, we have to, so to speak, undergo the reverse experience of making ourselves compatible with the heavenly Torah. So we spent a year, so to speak, in this lower paradise, and slowly we get acclimated and transformed to be someone who can appreciate the heavenly Torah of black fire atop of white fire. But this concept that we have, so to speak, this heavenly Torah, the first thing that God created, and it exists on a different dimension in the spiritual world, and it was transposed to our world via Moshe. When we ask the question, how did Abraham get Torah? Abraham did a personal version of mosaic transpositioning of Torah. Abraham was a prophet. He was in communication with God. And the Almighty 
revealed to him the heavenly Torah via prophecy. But he was also able to transpose that into understanding exactly how to behave in this world in line with Torah. That's the first explanation of how Abraham had Torah. How did he know exactly what to do? He had access to Torah of Blackfire type of white fire. And like Moses for the nation, Abraham himself knew how to do the same thing, how to translate those insights and those understandings, those principles to the human and worldly frameworks. That's one explanation. There is a second explanation I want to share. And that is based upon a Talmud book of Erevan, page 100b. It says, had we not been given Torah, we would learn modesty from a cat. A cat's very modest. You'll never catch a cat going to the bathroom. And we'd learn not to steal from an ant. Ants don't steal from their friends' piles. And we'd learn fidelity from a dove because a dove is loyal to their spouse. And we'd learn proper interpersonal and marital behavior from a rooster. That's what the Talmud says. If we didn't have Torah, we could find out the principles of Torah from studying animals. There's a deep idea over here. There is a synergy in the world. We believe that the Torah, well, that's created by God. The world and all the things that are in the world, that's also created by God. God's handiwork and God's commandments both come from God. So it should be no surprise if we find overlaps between the two. Moreover, we said that the Almighty used the Torah to create the world. And therefore, it's possible to reverse engineer the result, namely the world itself, to figure out Torah, to figure out the blueprint. Torah and all creation, they all have the same craftsmen. And therefore, there's going to be a lot of overlap. It's going to be possible to figure out the principles of Torah from the world around us. And by the way, you'll notice that a lot of societies that didn't have a Sinai eventually arrive at the same laws or versions of the same laws of the Torah. And the reason is because the world and even the human brain, that's all made by God. The Torah is just the the direct, clear, succinct, comprehensive will of God. But truthfully, there are other ways to arrive at that because the brain that we're using to interface with the world and the world itself and all the messages that the world imparts to us, all that comes from God. And therefore, theoretically, it's possible to arrive at the conclusions of the Torah from examining the world. And therefore, the second theory argues that Abraham, again, did not have a Sinai experience, a revelation to get the Torah 
but he reversed engineered the world and discovered Torah from the world. And finally, there is a third interpretation I want to share with you today on this Parsha podcast that I'm supposed to be subdued and really calm. Am I doing a good job? Am I being calm? Am I being balanced? Am I maintaining my composure? I hope so. There is a Midrash that tells us where Abraham got his Torah from. Mehechan Lamad Avraham Torah. From where did Abraham study the Torah? And it gives us two answers. One of them is Me'atzmo. He studied Torah from himself. The second opinion tells us that his two kidneys were transformed into two pitchers of water. And those pitchers began to sprout Torah from them. So where did Abraham study Torah from? From himself. And his two kidneys turned into two wellsprings of Torah. There's a deep idea over here. Each and every one of us, we have a soul within us. A soul is a captive citizen from the spiritual world. The soul doesn't want to be here. The soul yearns to go back to where it came from. It suffers every minute that it's here. But the soul actually contains within it all of Torah. Everything that we need is actually found within us. But the problem is, is that most of us don't have any access to our soul. Your soul is like your kidneys. It's like your internal organs. How much did you spend yesterday thinking about your internal organs, your stomach, your spleen, your liver, your kidneys? If everything is functioning properly, if your body's operating properly, if everything is well greased and oiled and operating at perfect functionality, you don't think about your internal organs at all. Of course, you know that they're there, you're thankful for them, but it's not something which captures your attention. That is the state of our soul. Maybe we're aware of its existence, maybe yes, maybe no, but it does not dominate our life. We don't think about it too much. But within the soul is all of Torah. It's embedded in the soul. It's inseparable from the soul. And in the event that we're able to unearth our soul, we could discover all of Torah from ourselves, from our kidneys. And the problem is, is that we have what's called the Yitzhahara. The Yitzhahara is the blockade. It blockades us from other people. It blockades us from our creator. And it blockades us from the soul that we have within us. Abraham was one of the few people who completely overcame and eradicated his Yitzhahara. By dint of that, he was able to not only be completely empathetic to other people, 
He had no barriers separating him, cloistering him up into a little cartoon of selfishness from other people. He was able to connect to God. And he was able, of course, to connect to his soul. And by doing that, he was able to access and to tap in to the tremendous wellsprings of Torah that were baked into his soul and are truthfully baked into our soul as well. We're just not aware of it. So these are three different interpretations as to how exactly Abraham studied Torah. So what do we have over here? We have this concept. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they kept the whole Torah, maybe not out of the land of Israel, and maybe there are other differences between the Torah that they had and the one that we have because they weren't actually technically obligated to do it. They did it voluntarily. But they kept all of Torah. Not only that, they studied all of Torah, maybe even more than what we have. And we have three different approaches to understand how exactly they did that. Either Abraham was able to transpose the Torah in a way similar to Moshe from the heavenly Torah of black fire type of white fire into the worldly frameworks, the earthly frameworks that we live in. Or he was able to reverse engineer this world to be able to see what the world was all about and to find within it the fingerprints, so to speak, of God and of the Torah. Alternatively, he was able to find it deep within him. To me, the most interesting takeaway of this, the the lesson, I think, of this subject, is that Torah is the best way to live, but it's the definitive way to live. Even, you know, we think of Torah as something that, we're, well, we're obligated to do it. We better do it or else we're in trouble. We were commanded and we accepted the covenant at Sinai. We're bound to it. We're obligated to it. We have no choice. We have to follow these rules. Here we see the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they kept the entire Torah, every part of it, every jot and tittle, even the rabbinic law, they lived really the way we live. And they did that by choice. Why did they choose to do it? They chose to do it because this is the definitive prescription for how to live the most enriching and pleasurable life possible. It's not just some collection of arbitrary, disjointed laws. This is the way to maximize the human experience here. In fact, we're even told that the human body and the Torah are perfect mirrors of each other. Moreover, the human soul and Torah are perfect mirrors of each other as well. Meaning that by doing the Torah, we're actually perfecting and uplifting ourselves. It's not some sort of isolated mitzvah, some law, some regulation, something we have to do. This is the way to live life to the maximum. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's what they wanted. And they opted in. They voluntarily chose to do this because that made their lives rewarding. Now, I did see a lot of other interesting topics relevant to this subject. So I saw, for example, a fun question. Abraham kept the whole Torah. He kept the whole Torah. All 613 mitzvahs. Well, there's one mitzvah that we know for sure he didn't keep. And that's the mitzvah of circumcision. 
when God told him to circumcise at the age of 99, he was still uncircumcised. If Abraham kept the whole Torah, why didn't he circumcise until he was instructed? That's an interesting question. I actually read a book that offered nine different answers to this question, but that is for another day. So let's get to this week's exquisite insight. I got all kinds of suggestions this week for what we should call this segment, because I mentioned last time that I'm still not crazy about exquisite insight. Someone suggested maybe we should call it Torah secret or insightful inquiry or even Torah gems. I feel like we're going to give exquisite insight a few more weeks. Maybe it'll grow upon us. Maybe we'll like it. Maybe we'll stick with it or maybe we'll change it. Let us see. So listen to this question. Isaac was very concerned about kosher. We just talked about it. And when he sends Esav to go catch some game, he tells him, you better sharpen your sword so when you slaughter the animal, it's kosher. Don't feed me something that's not kosher. Yet if you read the instruction, he tells him, go take your implements and take your bow and take your knife and your sword and sharpen it and go catch me some game. Here's the question. Why is Asaf taking a bow? If you shoot an animal with a bow and arrow, that renders it almost every time as a trefa, an animal that's not kosher. If he hunts with a bow, the animal becomes not kosher. Why does Isaac tell him to take a bow? So I saw something amazing in one of the commentaries. The Sif says that Esav was such a sharpshooter, he was such a prodigious shot, he was able to aim exactly where in the body he wanted to hit. And he was able to aim at the spot, at the few spots in the body where an arrow penetrating the animal would not render it into a trefa. He was a marksman. He was a sharpshooter. He was a sniper. He had pinpoint accuracy and he was able to hit exactly where he wanted to hit. And therefore, Isaac was not worried about telling him to take your bow, take your bow, shoot the animal. But of course, you don't kill it and you don't make it into a trefa. Afterwards, you kill it with the sword or with the knife and do it in the kosher way. So to me, I found this really interesting because if you remember... Abraham, his other son, Ishmael, was also an archer. In chapter 21 of Genesis, we read a couple of weeks ago, we read how he became an archer. Ishmael was an archer. Esav was an archer. What do we make about the fact that all of Abraham's problematic progeny, they're all archers and they're all a good shot to boot. Now, I don't have an answer to this question. Maybe this is more fitting for our old segment, Answers and Questions. But I found something interesting. When Jacob is about to die in chapter 48 of Genesis, he calls over Joseph and he tells him, I'm going to give you the city of Shechem on top of what you're going to get as one of the tribes of Israel in the conquest of the land. 
the city of Shechem, that I earned, that I took from the Amorites, Becharbi ubertashti with my sword and my bow, I'm giving to you. Jacob, apparently, was also an archer. It's almost like we're a family of sharpshooters here. Everyone who comes from Abraham has a good shot. Ishmael's a sharpshooter. Jacob and Esau are both skilled with the bow. But then Rashi tells us something really interesting. What does it mean that Jacob captured the city of Shechem with his bow and arrow? It means his prayer. His prayer penetrated heaven like a bow and arrow and was so effective at hitting its mark. So maybe what this means is that all of Abraham's descendants had tremendous skill. They were all archers, but the arena in which they chose to display, to exhibit, to master their skills or to to hone their craft, Jacob was an archer, but he kind of channeled all of that towards prayer and was able to accomplish his war efforts, so to speak, or whatever he needed, he got via prayer. Whereas Asaph and Ishmael, they had the same steels or similar steel sets, but they chose to play in a different arena and therefore they ended up as ordinary archers. Is that an exquisite idea? I feel like it's almost like an exquisite stub. feels like there's more meat on the bone, but it's an insight. There's something to work with I hope so. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it. Did you enjoy it? Did you like this version of the Parsha podcast? A little bit different than what we usually do. Almost like taking a whole concept that kind of bubbles up in all kinds of different places and going through it methodically and trying to explain where it comes from. Did you like the idea? Was I toned down enough? Was it too exuberant? Send me an email. RabbiWobbleJibble.com. I thank you for listening. Have an amazing and fabulous and splendid rest of your week. And of course, a wonderful and sensational and terrific Shabbos upcoming. And please don't help the Almighty. We'll talk again next week.